Heavenly Father, we give great thanks that we have the opportunity to come together this morning as your people. We give thanks for the provision of this place and for the way that you have worked amongst your people here. And Father, as we gather together this morning as your people, I pray that you will give us open hearts and open minds, that we will hear clearly what you are saying to us from your word this morning. I pray that you will continue to guide and direct my thoughts and words as we explore your word together this morning. Father, we come because of the great gift that you have given to us in Jesus, and we give thanks for him and for all that he has done for us, for the love and grace that you have shown through him, and we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. You may find it helpful to keep that passage open in front of you. I personally feel that what we're going to explore today is a particularly exciting, simple yet very challenging scripture. We're going to essentially follow the text of uh, Matthew chapter 4 verses 12 to 25, which in my Bible is split into three sections. Jesus begins to preach, Jesus calls his first disciples and Jesus heals the sick. And uh, I think that's what you'll find in your outline and we'll just work our way through those three sections. So the first section is Jesus begins to preach. Now, it's impossible to ignore the connection between Jesus and John the Baptist. If you know the history, you'll know that the connection was there before they were born. John was the messenger, the voice in the desert, preparing the way for Jesus. He was technically about six months older than than Jesus. And his message was to all Jews. It was a warning that God's judgment was imminent and that all people needed to repent of their sins and be baptised. So the summary of his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now in this passage we're told that John has been arrested and at this point Matthew doesn't explain why he's been arrested. He leaves that information until chapter 14. So at this point, that knowledge isn't important. It's not relevant to what's happening. But later on, we'll find in chapter 14 that it's because John has spoken out against Herod, who has divorced his wife and unlawfully married his brother's wife. If that sounds complicated, it is. And John got in big trouble for speaking against it. What's important in terms of the passage that we're looking at here is that clearly John's arrest is the signal that begins Jesus' public ministry. Now, we're told in this passage that it's in fulfilment of a prophecy given through Isaiah, and that prophecy is restated there for us in verses 15 and 16. Now, I've read a few different commentaries and lots of different theories about why Jesus going to Galilee was the logical move. But to be honest, for me, it's all just speculation. So the great part about being the preacher is that I get to choose what I talk about. So let me share with you what I believe is important about this passage. When we see the words in the Bible in fulfilment of prophecy, what we should be hearing and understanding from these words is that this is God's plan. 
This is the plan that he set down a long time ago. And these words tell us that everything is going according to plan. Now, that should be enough for us. We need to learn that when God has a plan, that we can trust in it, even if we don't understand it, even if we can't see or comprehend what God is up to, we need to trust in it. I mean, we're not rocket scientists, are we? We don't have the brain power that God has. We don't see or understand the big picture like he does. So how can we be capable of understanding God's plan the same way he does? We can speculate all we like. We can pretend that we're smart. Some people even like to pretend they're smarter than God. But God knows. God knows that this is the right move. And this should be one of the rules of our life. If we're going to learn something from today's passage, then this is an important thing to learn. If it's my move, then feel free to question it. But if it's God's move, then trust it. Now, you may well ask, where on earth is Galilee? Well, if you did ask that, I'm glad you did, because here's a map of Galilee. Now, you'll see a few things on this Passage, probably better than I can because that one's really small and that one's too far around. But you'll see Jerusalem is to the south there and from Jerusalem up to where Galilee is, by my reckoning, is you know, give or take 120 k's, depending on where in Galilee you're going. You'll see there in Galilee uh, Nazareth where Jesus was raised. Now remember that we're living in a time where there are no buses, there's no taxis, there's certainly no cars. So travel consisted of walking around in sandals on very rough roads. So travel wasn't easy. So we might look at that and say, well, 120 k's isn't very far. Can I challenge you? If you want to learn how far 120 k's can be, Stick some sandals on your feet and go for a 120k walk and uh, see how you feel. The area that's in this passage is called, we, we see it in this passage, it's called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, while there are obviously some Jews living there, Nazareth was, after all, where Jesus was raised, but it's predominantly Gentile. Now, there's a mix of races there, including Jews, some of which were very religious and orthodox, and others who had largely accepted the Roman culture and the Greek way of doing things. But mostly it was Gentiles. Judea was a cultural crossroads with people from all around the Roman Empire. So again, to us, it may not seem like the logical place for Jesus to start his ministry. And from what I can gather, it was not the most desirable place to be maybe a bit like the old Mount Druitt, not the most desirable place to be. And yet, this is the place that Jesus begins his public ministry. Now, one of the little sidebars for me as, as I get to thinking about this is I find it interesting when we talk about this Galilee of the Gentiles and being the place 
where Jesus begins his public ministry, we need to remember that the Gospel of Matthew is basically a letter that's being written to a Jewish audience. So it seems to me that part of what Matthew is doing here is reminding the Jews that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for both Jews and Gentiles. And for the Jews, that's kind of a a bit of a new concept because they've been God's chosen people. So all of a sudden to come to understand that the gospel is also for the Gentiles is a bit of a, a new thing. Both the Jews and the Gentiles need to hear the gospel. It's not just for the Jews, and so the Jews need to learn to share, and the Gentiles need to hear the gospel and accept Jesus, this Jew, the Messiah, who also happens to be Jewish. As we continue to look at that quote from Isaiah, we see this great analogy about darkness and light. Now, it's not the only time in the Bible that we see this kind of analogy, and it's a, an image that I really enjoy and um, one that speaks a lot to me about the power of the gospel message. Light and dark, it's something that we can understand. These people who live in darkness will see a great light. What a vivid picture this paints for us. Light coming to the dark. I'm sure that you've all had that kind of experience where you've been in the dark and you flip the switch, on comes the light, and everything changes. The light coming to the dark. Now, the analogy here is that the dark are the lost and God's concern is for the lost. Like the lost, the dark can't fix itself. It needs external light. The whole nature of being lost is that you're lost. You don't know where to go or what to do. That's what being lost means. You have no direction. It takes an outside force to save you, an outside force to give you direction, to get you to your destination. The light shines in the darkness and the way is revealed. And as long as we have the light, the dark can't unshine the light. The light is more powerful than the dark. And so the light will shine on them as it does for us. God is so concerned for the lost that he provides the light. The light is Jesus, God's message of salvation to us. The cost of saving the lost is his son. This is the essence of the gospel message. It's the good news that all need to hear. Now, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, do those words sound familiar? They should. They are exactly the same words used to describe John's message in Matthew chapter 3. It's the message that the world needed to hear then. And it's the same message that we need to hear right now. The message is consistent. John has prepared the way and now Jesus is ready to begin his public ministry. Now, just as a bit of a a side note here, 
when Sarah read the, the passage, she mentioned that last week we'd had the temptations of Jesus, which finished at verse 11, and we started today at verse 12. One of the things that's not apparent when we look at that is what's missing. If we compare Matthew to the other Gospels, we find that between verse 11 and verse 12, about a year has passed. Some of the things that Matthew has chosen not to include in his Gospel are some of the things like Jesus turning water into wine, driving the money changers from the temple, talking to Nicodemus, and his encounter with the woman of Samaria. Now, I'm not planning to explore or comment on this, but I just thought it was an interesting point for you to be aware of. More importantly for today, we come to verses 17 to 22. Jesus calling the first disciples. Now, I have to confess that this is one of my favourite parts of the Bible. So it's pretty exciting for me that that I've ended up being able to, to speak on it today. There's so much to this story, and yet it's so simply written. Sometimes in the Bible, things are just so beautifully understated that it makes the point even louder. For example, last week, when we looked at the temptations, we had this great passage where it says Jesus fasted for 40 days and so he was hungry. Like every time I read that, I think, really? No kidding. Try not eating for 40 days and see how hungry you are. For me, sometimes I can't go 40 minutes. We see the same thing in this story. We see these very simple understatements that speak so loudly and clearly to us. At least they speak loudly and clearly to me. Jesus is walking by the Lake of Galilee. Now, the passage almost makes it sound like he's just aimlessly wandering around, but we know that's not the case. Jesus always has purpose in everything that he does. And he's clearly there to run into these fishermen. So at first, he sees two brothers, Simon, who later becomes known as Peter, and Andrew. They were fishermen throwing their nets into the water. These guys had no boat. They just had their nets, which they were using to fish. Jesus says to them, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, at this point, you might like to try and imagine what this was like. Put yourselves in Simon and Andrew's shoes. Now, you may not fish for a living. You may be fishing because you're a weird person who actually enjoys fishing. But these guys, in this case, the image is you. You're going about your business, working hard to make a living. Along come this man who says, drop what you're doing and come with me. How do you think you would react? If it was me, I'd have at least a 100 questions before I would even consider it. But for these men, it seems to be not the case. Now, I don't know what Simon and Andrew knew about Jesus. I don't know whether they'd seen him before. We aren't told, and it doesn't really seem to matter. What we see is that they're working their nets Jesus walks up to them and says, drop everything and follow me. 
There's no job description other than that he will make them fishers of men. You can work that one out. I'm sure they had trouble with it. There's no employment contract. There's no health plan. Just Jesus and an unknown future. They could not have possibly known at that point how much the future of humanity would be changed over the next three years. And yet something about this very simple and understated exchange compels them to leave it all behind and follow Jesus. Do they stop and ask a hundred questions like I would? Do they stop to have a committee meeting to discuss the best strategy? Do they offer Jesus a hundred different reasons why they can't or shouldn't go? Did they ever say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, it's been nice, but I really need to get back to my nets now? No. Did they say, Jesus, I think you've got me mixed up with someone else. I'm sure there's someone else out there who's far more qualified than I am. No. They just left their nets and immediately left to follow him. They left their old lives behind and became new people that followed Jesus. Not just follow him down the shore of the lake, but to follow his teaching, to become his followers, to become his disciples. They've taken on a lifelong mission. They've given up the security of their present for the unknown with Jesus. They gave up possessions and relationships in order to follow Jesus. Now, we then see this effectively repeated with James and John, the sons of Zebedee. The added information here is that the boat suggests that these guys were a little richer because they had a boat. And they were with their father. So it would appear that they're giving up even more in terms of possessions and relationships. And we all know that the more material possessions we have, the harder it is to walk away. And yet, again, we see no hesitation. The power of that single word immediately should not be underestimated. There's no question, there's no delay, there's no thought of self. Jesus calls and they go immediately without hesitation. They left their boat, they left their father and they followed Jesus. They followed into the unknown trusting in the man who had called them. This man who is Jesus, God in the flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that story and I just go, wow. This simple and understated passage that has huge consequences and asks us some very serious questions. Questions like, What are you prepared to give up to follow Jesus? What priorities do you set for your life? Do those priorities include Jesus? 
What challenges does this present to us now? And what is God calling you to do? Now, I suspect that all of us know somebody or some people that have responded to God's call in really big ways. For me, the ones that that, uh, I know personally and think about with this kind of thing are the Parkers and the Goscombs, both of who sacrificed huge things in order to serve God where they felt called. And I know that there are many who have left good jobs and done really crazy things like go to theological college to become full-time ministers. And it's true that sometimes God asks big things of us. But sometimes we see God's call in other ways too. Sometimes in little ways. And we need to be just as prepared to do the immediate for those little things. Just being here today means that you've sacrificed your time for Jesus. God calls us to give our time, our energy, our thoughts and our money to the work of the gospel. And there's no question that that call involves sacrifice. And God calls us to do this without question or hesitation. We never know when that call to sacrifice is going to come. You might just be down by the shore of the lake fishing. Sometimes it's a call to make major changes in your life. And sometimes it's a call to spend five minutes with someone who needs to hear about Jesus. Sometimes it's a call to give a little bit more. And sometimes it's a call to give a lot. Sometimes it's little things every day, like planning on how we spend our time, like planning to spend time in the Bible, or about how we spend our money. And sometimes little things can make a big impact. These men were going about their everyday lives, and along come Jesus and changes everything. As the saying goes, expect the unexpected. Now, I really hope that this passage is speaking loudly to you today. It has certainly spoken very loudly to me as I've worked my way through this passage, and it does ask us some very simple and yet serious questions. Are you listening to the call of Jesus in your life? Are you prepared to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus? Does your decision to follow Jesus reflect in your life? Or are you living life on your own terms? Are you prepared to step into the unknown, trusting that God is there for you? The kingdom of heaven means that God is the king. Are you recognising the reign of God as the king in your life. Now, hindsight's a great luxury, and for us, we know the end of this story. We know that it's not a journey that these fishermen had to make on their own. Jesus was with them for three years and patiently explained the gospel to them. He helped them to grow, and he provided everything that they needed. And ultimately... He gave his life for them, just as he did for us. And when he did leave, he left them the Holy Spirit, 
so that he would effectively always be with them as he is for us. He makes the same promise to us. He promises us that he will be there for us every step of the way. There's no promise that life will be easy or that you will have worldly riches. But he does promise that you will never, ever have to face anything alone and that the greatest treasure in the whole wide world is yours already because he's paid the price for that treasure for you. Nowhere else, nowhere else can you have the 100% assurance of the riches of eternal life, only in Jesus. He is the light that shines in our darkness. He is the way, the truth and the life. And he wants us to learn to trust in him. Now, I'm sorry if all this feels a bit dramatic, but I do find this simple story to be a really compelling one. It's one that challenges me every time I hear it. It's one that both scares and reassures me all at the same time. And I hope it impacts on you in the same way. God's word is powerful and it's meant to impact our lives. And so we come to our last little section, verses 23 to 25. Jesus heals the sick. Now, in the NIV, the title simply reads, Jesus heals the sick, and there's certainly an emphasis on that. But really, Jesus does so much more than that. Jesus went everywhere in Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news. And I'm sure that he, that he taught outside of the synagogues as well. That was his job. The message that they needed to hear was repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's the message Jesus is bringing them. Now, Jesus had no formal training as a rabbi or teacher, and yet he has no problem teaching in the synagogues. And people are drawn to him. There is something about him that reflects his authority. Now, we know it's because he's the son of God. They wouldn't have known that. There is just something about him that uh, speaks with knowledge and authority. And so people listened. Despite not having Facebook... The grapevine obviously seemed to be working just perfectly fine and news of Jesus spread with people bringing those that suffered all kinds of illness to be healed. They came from everywhere. So if we went back to that map, you'll see even as far as Jerusalem, people were making that journey to see Jesus. Now, Galilee itself is a relatively small area, about 110 k's by 65 k's. It had about 200 villages and was pretty heavily populated. So there's about 3 million people in there. And so there's not only these 3 million people in Galilee, but there's also these large crowds that are coming from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across from the Jordan. So people are hearing about him and following him. People have travelled just to see him. So is he popular? Well, it certainly looks that way. Is there anybody that he hasn't been able to heal? Well, I don't believe so. At least where there's a real problem. 
Now, I can't help but wonder if the crowds have focused too much on the healing and ignored the real message that Jesus is there for, the message to repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. From this passage, it would certainly seem that way to me. Again, it's an important lesson for us to learn. Sometimes we can't see the kingdom of heaven when we're staring it in the face because we get distracted by what we think are our immediate needs. We need to learn to live our lives with open hearts and minds. We need to learn to focus on the important issues. We need to learn to focus on the eternal issues rather than just the here and now issues. Imagine if you could see the world from God's perspective. Now, that brings us to the end of of this passage. And it was at this point that I kind of struggled to know how to finish this sermon. Let me finish with the words of Peter from Acts chapter 10. Now, when we first saw Peter in Matthew today, he was Simon the fisherman and he responded to Jesus' call to follow him. These are his words after Jesus' death and resurrection. They're appropriate for us today and they pretty well summarise this passage for us. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel according to the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Again, wow. This is the gospel that we still preach today because your sins can't be erased using Photoshop. There's only one solution for sin. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent, believe, and receive forgiveness of your sins through his name. Because God so loved the world that he gave us Jesus, his son, to be the means of our salvation. Put your trust in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we give great thanks for the message that you bring to us from your word. We give thanks that your word is powerful and speaks to us today. Father, most of all, we give thanks for the gift that you've given to us in Jesus. For the life that he lived 
for the way he gave his life on the cross and the way that you raised him from the dead. Father, we know that through this gift, our sins have been forgiven. Help us to comprehend this. Help us to live this each day. Help us to listen and hear your call to us in big and little ways and to be willing to respond immediately to be your people in this time and this place. Father, your love for us is just so amazing and we give thanks for the love and mercy that you've shown to us in Jesus and we pray all of these things in his name.